morning. Thank you, Johan, for leading us in prayer and the reading. All right, so today we are continuing in our Lent sermon series that we uh, began, I believe, five weeks ago. Um, and the, the sermon series we've been calling uh, Man of Sorrows, and in it we've been taking the time to slowly walk through uh, the last uh, 18 to 24 hours of Jesus' life together. And we've been focusing in on uh, just how alone Jesus has been on this journey and trying to get a deeper understanding of uh, all that he suffered there on our behalf. And so far we've seen how his closest friends, despite their best intentions, have all bailed on him and failed him in his greatest hours of need. Uh, Judas betrayed him for money. His own people, the people that he came to save have rejected him. And even uh, Peter, his most earnest and stalwart friend, as we saw last week, uh, denied him, uh, denied even knowing who he was three times. And today, we're going to see how even the Roman legal system, the one thing that you would hope would remain impartial and unbiased, even this would be turned against Jesus. The entire legal process that he faced was a sham. Every single part of it was a complete and total mockery of justice, from the trumped-up charges that provided the occasion for it, to the non-verdict that Pilate issues, uh, to the sentencing being carried out by a crazed mob. Jesus Christ, the perfect judge, was judged in the most corrupt and unjust way imaginable. And I just want us to think about that for a minute before we jump in here. The very idea that Jesus, to whom has been entrusted the judgment of the entire world, both the living and the dead, he's put on trial and interrogated by not one, but two corrupt human courts. Right? The creator of the universe is put on trial by his creatures. This is the clay rising up to shake its fist at the potter. And the insanity of it cannot be overstated. And so, uh, we're going to walk through the details of uh, these proceedings and see how each part of what should have been uh, the mechanism of justice was turned on its head and became a tool for the ultimate miscarriage of justice. And we're going to examine together um, basically three parts of these proceedings. The charge brought against Jesus the verdict arrived at, and the sentence pronounced. All right, so those are the three sort of headings we're going to work under. The charge, the verdict, and the sentence. So we begin with the charge. What exactly is it that Jesus is being put on trial here for? Our text opens with the words, Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor. So by way of trans transition, uh, in the last two weeks, the setting has been uh, the courtyard of Caiaphas, the, the high priest. Uh, Jesus is being tried before the Sanhedrin. Um, but we see in verse 1 of chapter 27, it says this. It says, early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans to have Jesus executed. So they bound him and led him away and handed him over to Pilate the governor. Did you catch that? 
This verse provides important insight into the type of charge that is being brought against Jesus, right? These Jewish religious leaders had already decided that the only acceptable outcome is the execution of Jesus. They would settle for nothing less. But because they lived under Roman rule, they were not permitted to execute anyone themselves. Uh, they even said so in John's account of these events, uh, that when they arrive at Pilate's palace, Pilate basically says, what are you doing here? Why don't you just try this man in your own court? And their objection is, we're here because we are not allowed to kill this man. So, if they wanted Jesus to be put to death, they were going to have to get the local Roman governor to sign off on it. So enter Pontius Pilate. So who is this man, Pontius Pilate, who judges Jesus here? Uh, Pontius Pilate was a Roman governor, as we see in our text. He was appointed by Tiberius to be the fifth governor of this province of Judea and Samaria. And he's known to have served in that role for about a decade, from uh, 26 to 36 AD. Um, and the province of Judea and Samaria, uh, it was known as a problem territory because uh, of the religious infighting uh, and because of the number of political uprisings that had swelled up there. Um, and in addition to its volatile uh, socio-political climate, uh, this region also has no major seaports. It's not a trade hub. Um, it's basically just the place where all the monotheists lived in the Roman Empire. And because of this, it didn't have any of the cultural diversity of many of the other provinces, and it would not have been a very desirable station uh, for a member of the Roman elite class, such as Pilate. So in short, Pilate has drawn the short straw as far as government appointments went in those days. And the Bible, in all the accounts of these events, is very kind to Pilate. Uh, it presents him generally as a very reasonable guy who just got pressured by a mob. Um, and, but scholars tend to agree that this is likely because at the time that these biblical accounts were being written down, Pilate was still around. <laughs> Um, but also, uh, as the church was rapidly expanding through the Roman Empire, it wouldn't have served them well to speak poorly of the Roman governors. Um, but perhaps even more importantly for Matthew's purposes, uh, he understood that Pilate, uh, however you assess his personal moral culpability in all of this, he was simply a tool being used by the Jewish religious establishment to bring Jesus down. Um, as we're going to see later in our text, they were happy to take full responsibility. However, despite all that, it's worth noting that all of the extra-biblical references to Pilate, both Jewish and Roman, paint a picture of a man of ruthless ambition and paranoid self-preservation. And he's been given the power of the empire to subdue and control the region of Judea and Samaria. So understanding that, we live in a Western democratic nation, right? Which means, uh, at the very least, that if someone were to drag us before a federal judge and level an accusation against us, there would be a long, drawn-out procedure during which our accusers would have to prove uh, that we were actually guilty 
of committing the crimes that they're accusing us of, right? There's always the presumption of innocence until proven guilty. But for Jesus, living under a totalitarian regime, uh, this was a place in which due process, uh, particularly for those who are not Roman citizens, could be suspended at any time, particularly if you were considered a threat to the empire. And so Jesus' situation would have been probably a lot closer to, in our modern context, uh, some of the stories we hear coming out of China where someone is accused of speaking out against the CCP, police show up at their house and take them away to uh, a closed trial where there's no witnesses, uh, there's no press, and then they are sentenced and disappear, possibly sometimes never even heard from again. So that is the kind of situation that Jesus finds himself in. And in that type of context, the system can be weaponized against others as a tool of personal vengeance. And that's exactly what's happening here. The religious leaders have brought Jesus to the Roman proconsul, who is the highest court in the land at that time, and accused him of inciting rebellion. They said that he was claiming to be the king of the Jews, and this title is important because its use is strategic. The only other time that this title is used, or in connection with Jesus, in Matthew's Gospel is all the way back in chapter 2, where the Magi go to Herod's palace seeking the one who was born the king of the Jews. And I don't know if there's any kids left in here, but kids, you remember what happens next? Right? Herod, in his paranoid fear of being overthrown, had all of the boys under the age of two killed. So this is not an accusation that the Jews would have thrown around lightly. And Jesus' accusers himself uh, did not use this language to describe their problem with Jesus at any point before this. Right? Their problem with Jesus was religious, not political. Their problem with Jesus was that he claimed to be the son of God. But since Pilate would have had no interest in being dragged into a religious debate, they deliberately framed Jesus' crime in political language. And now remember, Pilate's entire job was the quelling of political uprising from among the people of Judea and Samaria. Right? If he had failed at this task, it was his own head that was on the chopping block. And so this would have been taken as a direct threat against him. And this is why our passage opens with Pilate asking Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? See, Pilate needs to assess whether or not Jesus is in fact a personal threat. And Jesus simply replies, as we see in verse 11 as well, you have said so. See, in Matthew's account of events, these are the last words that Jesus will say until he's on the cross. And these are certainly the last words the only words that Pilate is going to hear from him. And look at what he chooses to do with them. He says, you have said so. Jesus does not deny that he is the rightful king. But he also doesn't qualify that the way that he did when he was questioned in front of Caiaphas and the chief priests. There, he qualified that his kingdom wasn't an earthly one, 
but that his throne was in heaven, which of course was a far more serious claim for that audience. But with that very same qualification here, he could have assured Pilate of his innocence in this court, but he chooses not to. So Jesus didn't do himself any favors in either court. His qualification enrages the first court, and his omission of the same qualification leaves unnecessary suspicion lingering in the second. So why? Jesus had set his face toward the cross already back in Gethsemane. He had decided that he was going to let matters take their course and he wasn't going to fight it. As Pascal mentioned uh, two weeks ago, he's fulfilling the prophecy. He said so in Gethsemane when he was taken. He's fulfilling the prophecy that he was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. Jesus knew it had to be this way. And we see in verse 12, the chief priest continues to accuse him. Though he's not defending himself, they're piling on charges. Now, Matthew doesn't include the contents uh, of these additional accusations because he seems far more interested in highlighting Jesus' refusal to engage them. But Luke does shed some light on this. In, in chapter 23 of Luke, he says, they insisted he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. They continue to paint this picture of Jesus as a political revolutionary, raising up a violent mob for revolt. In short, the charge that they are bringing against Jesus is that he is an enemy of the state, a rabble-rouser, and an insurrectionist who Pilate must deal with swiftly and severely. Which brings us to the second tool of injustice, the verdict. In verse 14, we read that Jesus made no reply, not, to even, not even to a single charge to the great amazement of the governor. Now this uh, construction here where it says to the great amazement of the governor, this, this construction in the Greek is used all throughout the Gospels to describe various people's reactions uh, to meeting Jesus face to face. And in every case, it carries with it a sense of admiration. It seems that Pilate is actually impressed by Jesus' strength of character. Perhaps it was simply his refusal to grovel and beg for his life that made this hardened uh, Roman official like Pilate. Maybe that's why he would have appreciated it. You know, a courageous and principled person may have been able to keep silence in the lesser court where the stakes would have been lower, though that would have been incredibly difficult in and of itself. But now, surely, under these circumstances, surely a falsely accused man would have reached his breaking point. Um, whenever I read these texts, I try to imagine the type of emotional pressure that Jesus is under in this moment. Um, and the closest thing I can come to uh, in terms of an analog to my own life is, is a, a story, the, the, and I should preface this, I don't say this in any way to disparage police. This is the one and only story of, of a bad interaction I ever had with a cop. Um, 
that wasn't entirely my own dumb fault. <laughs> um, so I was young, I was probably in my early 20s, and I was driving in a snowstorm, and I wanted to make a left-hand turn at an intersection. The light was green when I pulled up, but it wasn't safe to come through yet. The uh, opposing traffic was coming through. And it was really slippery, so I didn't want to pull all the way into the intersection um, and, yeah, leave myself wide open there with the trucks sliding all over the place. And so I wait. And by the time this last truck comes through, the light is already stale red, and I go to complete my turn. And I realize to my left there is a police SUV parked at the lights right here. <laughs> And sure enough, he pulls a U-turn and starts following me for an unnecessarily long time. Uh, he pulled me over about four kilometers later. Um, and he comes up to my window and the, to sort of shorten the story, he basically says, I'm going to give you a ticket for running a red light. And uh, yeah, being a young man and driving, having a nice car, like at that time, I don't know how it works now, but with demerit points and stuff, that would have meant... Uh, you know, it would have been hard to ensure my vehicle moving forward. <laughs> and he says, you know, given the conditions, it's also, you know, you should be driving with extra caution. You know, I could potentially even get you for careless. So I realized, like, this is a very big deal. So I had to say something. I had to do something about it. So, um, you know, I said to the officer, with all due respect, um, I don't think you saw everything that happened. <laughs> and I went on to explain the whole thing, and he, he didn't seem amused um, <laughs> or convinced. And he said, so you're calling me a liar. And I mean, that's a really tough situation to be in. Uh, I said, no, I don't think that's what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, I don't think that you necessarily saw everything. So he leaves, goes back to his truck, and he comes back, I didn't realize he had a partner in his vehicle. So now there's two of them. And he goes, tell us both that I'm a liar. <laughs> And I was like, I, I don't know what to say, but uh, I, I just reiterated the story and said, I just don't, I don't think this is fair. I don't, I don't think you realize what happened. And they turn around and they're kind of conversing amongst themselves. And uh, eventually he turns around and he goes, it's your lucky day. I have to go to an accident. Um, but he goes, you know, I'll be, I'll be watching for you. And he leaves. And... Uh, I should have been happy. I should have just taken the win. Um, but I, as I drove home, I found myself in this uh, whirlwind of mixed emotions about this. And about halfway home, I realized that like, my whole body was like shaking violently. And uh, it took me a long time to process what was really going on there. It wasn't just anger. It was a feeling of like just being deeply disturbed at the feeling of uh, injustice, but also helplessness, powerlessness to defend yourself. Um, I've been in situations before where I was in physical danger, but I always felt in the back of my mind, you know, if this goes south, the police will be there and they'll protect me, right? But in this particular case, it, it was the people who I normally would have relied on to defend me that I felt I needed defending from. And so it, it just, it, it kind of broke my brain for a little while and it took a while to recover from that. Anyways, that is, you know, that's my life and it's been an easy one. So now picture Jesus. Ratchet that feeling, that 
that experience, that the intensity of that moment up by a thousand and then add real life and death stakes to the mix. And he's just standing there, calm, composed, silent. Why? And how is it possible that Jesus can maintain composure in a moment like that? You know, my whole ordeal lasted maybe 15 minutes. And if I had had to, to hold out any longer, I'm not sure that I could have done it. I have no idea how Jesus is enduring this entire day of this. But, again, we go back to Gethsemane, where Jesus accepts and entrusts himself to the will of his heavenly Father. He trusts that he has someone still who will vindicate him. And so, in any case, Pilate sees Jesus here and he knows there's something special about this man. There's something unique about this situation. And he seems to have come to the conclusion that Jesus is far more honorable than his accusers. And we see this sort of drawn out a little bit in verse 18 where Matthew notes that Pilate knew that it was out of self-interest that these chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. He's getting it at this point. Clearly, Jesus is no threat to Pilate. He's simply a threat to these religious elites. And they're using Pilate. And he knows that now. This is like Haman trying to use Xerxes' vanity to exact vengeance on Mordecai. Or Darius' advisors turning him against Daniel. But this isn't Pilate's first rodeo. And so he devises a test. Right? Apparently, as an act of goodwill, and we see this in verse 15, that the Roman governors had a custom of releasing a Jewish prisoner of the people's choosing during the Passover feast. And so Pilate is probably thinking he's being pretty clever when he offers them a choice. Matthew 27, verse 17 says, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who's called the Messiah? All right, so who is this Jesus Barabbas character? Uh, just a quick note on the names. Uh, Jesus was about as common a name as you could get in uh, that day and age um, and in that place in the world among the Jewish people. Uh, so it's very likely that they are both just actually named Jesus. But if not, it's also possible that Matthew's using the names to draw our attention to the stark contrast between these two characters. Um, but that's an aside. Matthew simply introduces him as a well-known prisoner or a notorious prisoner. Uh, Mark and Luke fill in some more details for us, and they tell us that Barabbas truly was an insurrectionist who had committed at least one murder during an attempted revolt. So Barabbas actually was a political revolutionary, quite possibly a member of the Zealots, which uh, were a group of radical Jewish sovereignists um, who sought to overthrow or to throw off the yoke of Rome with the use of violence. Um, in short, Barabbas truly is everything that the chief priests have accused Jesus of being. 
And it's important to know that these types of revolutionaries, people like Barabbas, were not super popular among the common people at that time uh, because they actually made life harder for everyone. Every time there was an attempt at revolt, it was crushed by the iron fist of Rome, uh, and often the already unreasonable uh, tax collected by the empire uh, from their province would be raised as a consequence. So while Barabbas certainly would have had his supporters, uh, the people as a whole likely would not have had much love for him. And so Pilate probably assumes that there's no way that they're going to want Barabbas running around free, causing uh, trouble for them, and is hoping that being faced with this choice will bring the, the leaders to their senses and cause them to acknowledge Jesus' innocence. But Pilate made a miscalculation. And to his shock, as we read in verse 20, uh, the chief priests and the leaders are able, it seems fairly easily, to persuade the entire crowd to ask for Barabbas' release in exchange for Jesus' execution. And Pilate is understandably perplexed by this. He says in verse 22, What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Pilate says or asks. Pilate cannot fathom what Jesus could possibly have done to make these people hate him this much. What crime do you want me to crucify this man for? And how do they answer? Verse 23b says, they shouted all the louder, crucify him. In other words, we don't care what crime he's committed. We just want him dead. He's innocent. And Pilate knows it beyond a shadow of a doubt. You know, Matthew includes another interesting detail uh, that isn't mentioned in any of the other accounts of these events. In verse 19, we read that Pilate's wife sends word to him while he's hearing these accusations and trying Jesus. Uh, and she says to him, don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. And the Romans like the Greeks before them, put a lot of stock in oracles and dreams, uh, being able to provide insight into the past, present, and future. And so Pilate wouldn't have simply dismissed this out of hand the way you or I might be tempted to. So add this to everything else that he's heard and seen today. And what's the verdict? Before the law, obviously, Jesus is not guilty. Which brings us to his sentencing. And yes, you heard that correctly. Under normal circumstances, a not guilty verdict would not be followed by a sentencing. The story should have ended here with the crowds dispersing and Jesus being released. So what has gone wrong? We see in verse 24... When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. 
See, Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent, but he was also a self-preserving coward. And this mob was getting angry. And so he symbolically washes his hands and declares himself innocent of the outcome. The one man who had the power to stop it all abdicates all responsibility to save his own skin. And he tells the crowd, it's on you. And they apparently couldn't be more happy to accept the responsibility. Listen to this, the barbaric response. They say his blood is on us and on our children. This is the ultimate double down. These people were bloodthirsty. Verse 26, then he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed over him, handed him over to be crucified. You know, as a final parting gift, as a knife in the side, Pilate orders Jesus to be beaten again and then processed for crucifixion. Now, I'm sure in the coming weeks, uh, we're going to revisit the horror of the reality of crucifixion as a means of death. So I'm not going to belabor it here. Rather, suffice it to say that crucifixion was considered too barbaric, too shameful for a Roman citizen to suffer. And it was reserved only for the worst enemies of the empire. It is meant to be humiliating and excruciating to the extreme. And here, in the ultimate miscarriage of justice, Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the spotless Lamb, the only truly innocent man to have ever lived, goes to the cross for the crimes of insurrection and treason, while Barabbas, the notorious insurrectionist, goes free in his place. If that isn't an incredible picture of the gospel, I don't know what is, because you and I are usurpers of the heavenly throne. Our fallen nature's most basic instinct is to rebel against the king of heaven, to take credit for his gifts of grace, to cover ourselves in the glory that he deserves. We are all Barabbas. And in response, Jesus willingly gave up his throne and paid the penalty meant for us. Through this greatest miscarriage of justice in human history, Jesus, the true judge, justifies rebels rabble-rousers, and insurrectionists like you and like me. And now, the rightful king of the universe has reclaimed his throne in heaven for eternity. Let's pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we are in awe at the depth of your undeserved love toward us. That Jesus would allow himself to be humiliated by this absolute mockery of justice 
in order to bring many sons and daughters to glory. And it's because of this love that we can confidently count ourselves among them. Father, break us of our rebel spirit. Teach us to live in the fullness of this new reality purchased for us at that criminal's cross with the precious blood of the worthy Lamb, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. So typically, we uh, allow a time at the end of the sermon for any questions that you may wish to ask. Um, was, was there a slide up at one point? Phone numbers? Okay. So you can text to either Paul or I if you do not want to stand up and be heard publicly, or you can just raise your hand or just stand up and uh, ask a question if you have one. But again, in Roman, as you pointed out, actually I should repeat this, I guess, for, for a live stream and, uh, and people in the overflow, potentially. Um, so the, the, the question was, you, you started by saying that in, Jewish, in the ancient Jewish culture, uh, religion and politics were kind of one. It was just one way of life, right? And then in Roman culture, uh, they have a pantheon of gods, right? Um, and Sorry? Right, and Caesar, yeah, was considered, you know, the, the sort of chief god of the empire, right? Um, and so wouldn't it also have been offensive to them that Jesus made a claim to be God? That's the question, okay. Um, I think, again, you rightly point out that the, the Romans, they were uh, religious pluralists um, in that they not only had their own pantheons of God, but, or, or pantheon of gods, but um, as the empire spread they allowed all of the regional religions to be practiced. In fact, they encouraged them because they helped actually to keep uh, a lid on some of the revolts and uprisings. They liked to keep the local sort of religions uh, happy. Um, and so they were, they were very accustomed to many different claims of God. As long as you did not claim to be explicitly, claim to be above the emperor, um, then they, they probably would have been fine with it because he, he's just a one God among many. And at least in the gospel accounts, again, Jesus stays silent. Uh, he doesn't claim explicitly 
uh, in his own words there in front of Pilate to be above the emperor. Uh, he doesn't qualify the, the claim. So, yeah. Yeah. Anything else? I, I would have to look into that, but I would assume so. <laughs> it definitely seems to be a fair connection. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I would have to check that out a little closer to confirm that. But. Okay. So I would say yes. Oh yeah, sorry. Um, okay, so the question is, Jesus is our example, um, and, and so we follow in the footsteps of Christ, and we try to, to imitate uh, the life that he lived uh, in obedience to God. Um, and Jesus entrusted the fact that God was going to be his ultimate vindicator, and therefore he felt... Uh, he did not feel the obligation to defend himself, and he suffered injustice uh, for that reason. Your question is, do, our, do we have a responsibility to follow that? Yes. I would say um, yes, in that uh, we're, we're not going to do it perfectly. <laughs> you and I, like, I, I mean, that was my, my own anecdote is I, in that moment, it was like, I did not believe I had someone who would vindicate me or protect me, right? And that, it shook me. Um, now, we are, we are called to do everything in our power to emulate that. We should be cultivating this attitude that we have an ultimate vindicator that is beyond this world. And that, um, yeah, that, that ultimately, anything in this world does not get the last say, right? Doesn't get the last word. Um, however... We're also not called to be doormats, and we're not called to invite abuse, I don't think, in any way. Um, it's, 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 it's a little tough, but like for Jesus, you know, you, you talked about how we're called to defend others, right? Um, to, to defend the orphans and the widows and the, uh, those who can't defend themselves. And anytime Jesus exercises uh, anger, it's at injustice being done against someone else or against God, right? Ultimately, it's never at injustice being done against himself. And so we should aim to cultivate that type of attitude, knowing that there's limits to what we're able to do. Um, and again, it's Jesus, like, Jesus' principle is the law of love, right? Where he summarized the law uh, in the two commandments, love the Lord your God, uh, with all your heart, soul, and mind. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those, those are the, uh, that's the rubric, right? Through which you need to assess every situation. Um, 
what in this moment does it look like to love God with all my heart, soul, and strength? Um, what in this moment does it look like to love my neighbors? And yeah, there's a lot of messy gray areas. I think. Would you add to that? Uh, all I would say is um, oh no, we're running out of battery on this thing. All, all I would say in addition to that is uh, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus was a specific ministry of Christ. Mm -hmm. And we're to suffer as he did, but not necessarily experience all the same types of suffering that he did. So he, in order to fulfill the, the call to go to the cross, he had to take it, right? He had to allow himself to, to, be, uh, to be condemned and allow himself to be tried uh, uh, illegally, etc., in order to actually fulfill his mission, right? But we are not called to simply uh, receive false accusations and not defend ourselves, because we are called to be people of the truth and people of the light, and sometimes the light needs to be defended um, on our own behalf, as opposed to just the light defended for someone else. Do you understand what I'm getting at? Um, so, I don't think that, that God calls us to, you know, not avail ourselves of defense attorneys and, and these kinds of, of things that we experience in a liberal democracy um, simply because Jesus didn't. That's what I would say. Yeah. Uh, but I, I totally agree with what you're saying about defending others, for sure. He, that was his emphasis. But it was a different time. Mm -hmm.